Okay, we're going to begin here on the top of Kaftetim and Aleph by the two dots. Gemara is in the midst of discussing the setup of our Mishnah about what is the Melachlokid between Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Akiva in the Mishnah. We have two statements by the Tanaim, which is, first of all, and Rabbi Lezer Meretmeahi, then it's definitely Tmeah, Ve'ein Madlikim Ba. So those are two separate statements. One is that it's Tmeah, second one is that Ein Madlikim Ba. Ve'ukiv Omer Tohorahi, that is Tohor, and Madlikim Ba, you're allowed to use it for lighting. So the question is, are the two halachot correlated, or are they separate reasons? So we first attempted to explain the Machloket, about Tumah and Tahara, about the question of whether Kippul is Mivatel the Tumah, or is not Mivatel the Tumah. So does the original Begit intact or not intact? And that's the question of Tumah. With regards to Hadakah, we had the suggestion of Ravad or Ba'ava, that we're talking about Gimel al-Gimel Mitzum Tzamot. That they're exactly three by three etzbaot, and B'yom Tov Shechaliyot Erev Shabbat. Skinan, and the question of being Mesik, B'shivrei Kelim, in the sheet of Rabbi Huda and Ula, that was the Machloket. Then we add Rava. Rava made a suggestion over here. Tosso thinks the Girsu should be Rabba. Time with the Rebbe Leezer. The Fish Shein Malikim Bibtila Shein Mechurechet Velo Besmar Tutim Shein Mechurachim. That the reason has nothing to do with the Tumah. It all has to do with the readiness of the wick to burn on Shabbat. The Tumah's issue is one issue. And the lighting of candles on Shabbat, any hour of Shabbat, is about how prepared the wick is. So that was the second way we had to describe the Machloket. Today, later today, we'll get to a third way to explain it. So now, I'm Rabbi Yehuda Marav. Misikim b'kelim, ve'en misikim b'shivrei kelim, divrei Rabbi Yehuda. So in the explanation of Rav Ava, we bumped into this shita of Rabbi Yehuda, which is that one is allowed to, on Yom Tov, use kelim for the fire, but not use shivrei kelim, broken shards, for the fire on Yom Tov. The difference being that the kelim were whole going into Yom Tov, therefore they are muchan, they are usable, they are not muksa because the person had their mind on these objects going into Yom Tov. Shivrei kelim, if they break on Yom Tov, the shards are what are known as nolad. Something new that happened on Yom Tov, and something new that happens on Yom Tov is muksa mipnei nolad. The Behuda says, if you use kelim that were readily available, you knew about coming into Yom Tov, that's fine, they're not muksa. Shivrei kelim, something that happened on Yom Tov itself, that's muksa. You may not use those for your fire. Rabbi Shimon Matir. On the other hand, Rabbi Shimon says it's totally fine. Rabbi Shimon doesn't have the din and muksa. Mesigin bitmarim. One can use dates to fuel the fire. Achlan, on the other hand, if he eats the dates, emisigin begarinehem. They're pits. After you've eaten them, you may not use as fuel for the fire. Divrei Rabbi Yehuda. That's Rabbi Yehuda's position, again, for the same reason, which is that the dates themselves were available already coming into Yom Tov, therefore you had your mind on them, they're not muksa. On the other hand, the garinim were not available to you going into Yom Tov, and therefore they cannot be used to fuel the fire. Rabbi Shimon, again, is matir. And the last one is mesikim be'guzim. You can use for fuel of the fire nuts coming into, nuts that were available to you coming into Yom Tov. Achlan, on the other hand, if you eat them, em mesikim klipotehem. You may not use their shells for the fuel for the fire, Divi Rabbi Yehuda. Rabbi Shimon, again, is matir. Vitzricha. Why do we need them to argue in three different scenarios? Scenario of Shivrei Kelim, the pits of the dates, and the shells of the nuts. So Mar says, the Iyash Meinan Kamaita. 
Had we only known the case by Kelim, because in the first case, you clearly have a different item here. You originally had a whole kli. Now you have shards. That's clearly something new that developed in Yom Tov, and it's Asur. In the beginning, the Tamarim had pits inside of them, and now they have pits. All you did was make the pits accessible. By eating the Tamarim, you now made them accessible. I would have thought, that's not called Nolad according to Rabbi Yehuda. That it is. Even that is called Nolad according to Rabbi Yehuda. Had you only told me about the pits case, originally they were encapsulated, and now you ate them and you exposed them. We're talking about nuts of a shell, originally they were available to you, they're the outside of the nut. There's nothing changed, you've just taken out the food that's inside them. Let us say that that's not Nolad. Therefore, we needed all three of these cases. And the opposite would be true if you started with the latter of the three cases. Then, according to Rabbi Shimon, I would have thought, in that case, he's Matir. But in the case that is more like Nolad, he wouldn't be Matir. So I need both sides of here to show you how far-reaching both Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Shimon's positions are. Rabbi Shimon, by the Shivrei Kelim, still says it's not Mokseh. And Rabbi Yehuda still says it's Mokseh by the case of the shells of the nuts. Vaha, the Rav, Labefeirushitmar. Rav's statement here, because we started out Mar, is Amar Yehuda, Amar Rav, who brings these three brightot that include Rabbi Shimon and Rabbi Yehuda, who has not said explicitly, Ela Michlolo Itmar. It was an inference from Rav. The Rav Achal Tamre. Rav was eating dates. The Shada Kshiato. And he was throwing away the pits. The, he throws them either into the Buchia or the Buvia. He threw them into some sort of pan or a cold brazier. V'amrele Rabichia. Barpachte. Ben Gedolim. Kenegdov Yom Tov Asur. If you were doing this on Yom Tov, it would not be permitted. This was a weekday. And Rab was taking the pits after he was eating them and throwing them into the pan, the cold brazier, into the fire, basically, to fuel the fire. And his uncle, Rabbi Chia, says to him, listen, that's okay because it's a weekday right now. But had this been Yom Tov, it would not have been permitted based on the sheet of Rabbi Yehuda. So Kiblamine, Olo Kiblamine, did Rab accept Rabbi Chia's statement or Rab that he noted to him? Tashma. Tachiat Rav Bavel. Rav started out learning in Eretz Yisrael. He was a Talmud of Rabbi in Eretz Yisrael. And then moves to Bavel. Achal Tamare, he was eating dates. And he threw the pits out to the animals. He gave the animals to eat from the pits. He got them together and he took them out as food for the animals. So my love, what are the pits that we're talking about here? Are we talking about Piarsiata, Velo Kibla? Are we talking about these very good dates, ripe and tasty dates, that when you eat them, they easily pull away from the pit? Because they're fully ripe, and because they're a good date, and you eat them, they separate away from the pit, and what's left is simply the pit. There is no date stuck to the pit. So now if you're left with nothing on the pit, the pit is exactly what we were describing before. It's a review. You have something called Nolat. The pit is now a totally new entity. And what was Rav doing? Rav was still carrying around a Yom Tov and giving it to the animals. That means he doesn't think it's Muksa. That's the case. He did not accept Rabbi Chia's note to him. So when it says, Lo, they're Ba'armiato. They are 
non-ripe dates or not good quality dates, where when you eat them, they don't separate well from the pit. So when you have the pits afterwards, the pits still have residuals of the date on them. If they have residuals of the date on them, then the pits are still not muksa because they still contain part of the date, which is, we know, Ra'ui, when you were coming into Yom Tov, he already had his mind on those dates. And that's not muksa. So that's why you can't. And since they are Ra'uyim, because of the fruit that is on them, then he did accept Rabbi Chiyah's Ha'ara, but just, this wasn't a case where Rabbi Chiyah's din was applicable, because pits were not independent of the Peirot over here. So I'm really Shmuel Barachan, Rabbi Yosef, the Rabbi Yehuda, Damar Mesikin, Be'kelin, Mesikin, Be'shivrei Kelim, according to the position of Rabbi Yehuda, that you're allowed to use Kelim and not these shards of Kelim, Kelim the Adik Ba'purta, Avalei Shivrei Kelim. Let's see what happens. You throw the kli into the fire. One minute, or one second after it's in the fire, the fire takes to the kli. It's now a shever kli. If it's a shever kli, now you have muksa in the fire. Okay, so I have muksa in the fire. The problem with that is, If you then stoke the fire, or you turn the fire over, you're going to be moving muksa now, because the item is no longer a kli, it's a now a shever kli, it's muksa. You're not going to be able to stoke the fire, or move the fire around. The avad matno. You're right, it is true, that would be the case. But you have to act, or you have to use the advice of Rabata, which is, It seems, Their ovens were outside, and there was a palm tree in the yard, and some of the wood, or some of the leaves from the palm tree fall into the oven. So when they fall into the oven on Yom Tov, that's muksa, because they separated from the tree on Yom Tov, and that's something that you did not have in mind going into Yom Tov, and now they're in the tanur. So now you have the same problem that we described before. You have firewood, fuel, that is muksa. So how do you stoke the fire? How do you move it around? You do as you take a large number of pieces of wood, fuel, that is not muksa, that you had in mind to use going into Yom Tov. You have a pile of wood there that you plan to use that's not muksa. And then you throw it into the fire. And since now there's more wood in there that is mutar, versus the leaves that had separated, or the wood that had gone in it that was a sore, then it's fine to move it, because you're moving the rove. The rove is stuff that is not muksa, and therefore it is permitted. Rashi says that you're basically mevatlan berov. You're mevatalit through you putting in a rove. Right, it's generally mevatlan berov lechatchilo. We don't do that, but over here, the Gemara in Beitza says that the din of Eimavatlin Isur Lechatchilo only applies to Dine Doraita. By Dine de Rabbanan, it does not apply. And over here, we're talking about a Din de Rabbanan of Muksa. On the other hand, the Gemara then continues and says, well, according to those that believe that even in Dine de Rabbanan, Eimavatlin Isur Lechatchilo, how do you explain this case? The answer is that over here, the fire is consuming the Isur. And so the Isur is no longer going to be Be'en. It's not going to be there. And therefore, you can be mevatel iser lechatchila because the iser is dissipating as it burns. The problem is not the iser itself. The iser itself is burning in the fire, and extra wood that comes in here makes it mutar. And that will be the same suggestion with regards to the shivrei kelim. When the shivrei kelim, which is muksed, that you cannot stoke, you can't move the fire, you'll add in additional firewood that is mutar, and that will allow you to stoke the fire to move the fire around. Right. Oh, I mean that there's already mutar wood in there. Yeah, that might be fine. It's not that you have to, after the fact, put in majority. As long as the majority, what you're stoking is mutar, then it's fine. So Tosavot points out over here, which is interesting. He says, 
We know from other places, and early on in the Masechta, other places at Shas, Rav definitely subscribes to the position of Rabbi Yehuda, of Nolad, according to Rabbi Yehuda. He holds that it's Muqsa, Nolad is Muqsa, like Rabbi Yehuda. So why is the Gemara here saying that it's an inference and not an explicit statement? We have explicit statements from Rav that he subscribes to Nolad, like Rabbi Yehuda. So he said that the Gemara's question here is not whether he holds of Nolad of Rabbi Yehuda, but does he hold of this Nolad of Rabbi Yehuda that goes as far as to say that the pits of the dates and the shells of the nuts are still considered to be Nolad? So the Gemara says, that's what the example they bring for Rav. The example they're bringing for Rav over here is about dates. Because that's the specific incident that we're interested in. We want to know that if he thinks there's no lot, even by dates. So it tells us what it says. Well, now the problem is that the Gemara only brought up a case of dates. How do we know that he really thinks that's true by Egozim as well? By nuts, which we said was the most extreme form of Rabbi Yehuda's position, that even though the nuts and the shells are in front of you, they still consider to be muksa after you take the shells off. How do we know that? Well, from Rab, we only know about dates. We don't know anything about the Gozim. Tosavot says, even though the Gemara made it into a Tzrichuta, Truthfully, there's no reason to divide between them. And once we know Rab subscribes to one of these types of Rabbi Yehuda's type of Muksa and Nolad, then we're going to assume that he, if he holds by dates that way, he's also going to hold by the nuts that way. Right, Tosavot it says you have to say that there is some sort of Tzrichuta to explain it, but once we know that they're all packaged together, then we can say that Rab, if Rab subscribes to one, that doesn't. It is. I, I think it's not. It's not simple. What does what say? Yes, that's what I'm yeah. suggesting. I still think your show is right in some way that it's not so simple. But that's what it says because even when you say we agree that all of these are the luck of this way, but the difference still exists. It's not like we said that the difference isn't there. The difference is there, but despite that, that fact that the luck is this way. All right. So now Rabbam Nuna. All right. So now again we have two answers so far. We have the first answer of Rabbi the second answer of Rav about what Machloket is about. And now we have a third answer, which is Rav Amnuna. Rav Amnuna Amar Hacha Bepachot Mishlosha Shlosha Askinan. We're dealing with a baguette that is less than 3 by 3 Tzfachim. Take note of that. The original answer of Radabab is we're talking about a 3 by 3 Tzbaot baguette. Now, Rav Amnuna says, no, we're talking about something that's less than 3 by 3 Tzfachim. Omikulei Matlaniyot Shanukan. And we're talking about the way that we deal with rags. It's a special din in rags. And that's what's being discussed in the Mishnah. And Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Akiva subscribe to their positions with regards to rags, and that's what influences their positions in our Mishnah. Now, Rav Amnuna is only addressing the issue to explain why there's a difference in the din of Tehorah and Tmeah, not about why you're allowed to light with them or not allowed to light with them on Shabbat. Rav Amnuna is going to subscribe to Rav's position that the Machloket in Hadlakah revolves around whether this is considered to be a prepared wick or a not prepared wick. So in that way, he has no difference from Rava. But on the other hand, with regards to the Beget itself, he's coming to explain why there's a difference in the Din of Tehorah and Tmeah, not about why you're allowed to light with them or not allowed to light with them on Shabbat. And that is the Tznan. Pachot mishlosha shlosha. You have something that's less than three by three tzfachim. Rashi says the ilu shlosha shlosha chashive velo batle. Says if it's above three by three tzfachim, you don't have any impact on it. You can't impact it. Above three by three tzfachim, it would always be chashuv because it's inherently chashuv. But it's got significance even without what you do. Shitkinu lepkak boet amerchatz. They're using it for a plug, a drain plug. Ulaneir boet hakdera, or for wiping out hands, the pots. Ukaneach boet arechaim. 
or to wipe down the mills. Ben min amuchan, ben she'enu min amuchan, tamei. According to Divrei Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Eliezer says, doesn't matter if it's something that's prepared, something that's not prepared, tamei. Bishu amar, ben min amuchan, ben she'lo min amuchan, whether it's prepared or not prepared, tahor. Rabbi Kiva amar, min amuchan, tamei. If it's prepared, it's tamei. She'lo min amuchan, tahor. It's not prepared, it is tahor. I'm purposely not describing what prepared and not prepared is, because the Gemara is about to do that. Everybody agrees. He throws it into the garbage. If he wants to use something as a rag, it's a piece of cloth that's that small, he throws it into the garbage before or after he uses it. It's completely tahor, because it's clear that he's not machshivit. That he doesn't consider it to be a piece of cloth that is significant enough for him to store it. That happens, where it's less than three by three tzvachim, you throw it in the garbage, it loses utility. If somebody picks it up, it restarts the utility. So therefore, if it was tamay beforehand, it would be tahar, and then that person prospectively would have an object that could become tamay. But it does remove the tuma when you throw it into the garbage, because you're the owner of the item, and whatever you think about it, or whatever you do with it is significant. Once someone else can take it and then make it significant, they change the status once again. But it's a reset. It's a new status from where you threw it in the garbage, they pick it up. But if you handed it directly to them, then that would attaining its original status. On the other hand, if he specifically stores it in a chest or in a box, meaning that he's making it clear that this martut, this rag is important to him, then it's clearly tamay. It retains its status as a beged. Because he is treating it like something that is a beggar, that's something that's chashuv. So on the extremes, if he throws it in the garbage, clearly tahor according to everyone, he keeps it in the box, and it's tamay according to everyone, because it hasn't lost its status. Where do they argue? So there, difficult The machloket revolves around these two scenarios. One scenario is he throws it behind the door. The other one is that he hangs it on a frame or on some sort of peg that he hangs it on in the house. In that instance, the question revolves, what is his interaction with this rag? What is he thinking about this rag? Now, in terms of hierarchy, the hierarchy is kufsa. You put it into a box or a storage area, it's clear that you think it's important. Next down on the list is the magod. If you hang it on peg or the frame, that's the next scenario. Then after that is achorea delet. And the bottom of the rung is throwing it into the ashpa. So you have four levels of interaction with this rag in assigning its significance. The most significant is putting it away and storing it. The least, of course, is throwing it into the garbage where it's clear that you have no connection with it, you don't think that it's chashu. In between, we have these two cases, again, the higher of the two where you have more reason to think that he's storing it is where he hangs it up. And the lower of those two is if he puts it behind the door, that's like one step away from being in the garbage. So if you can ask them, I think that you're right. If you can ask him and he can clearly say that I, I think it's important, I'm going to use them, then there's nothing to talk about. Question here is that through his actions, can we read something into the thought process? So now the Gemara says, Rabbi Leizer Savar, date alui. Since he didn't throw it in the garbage, all the three categories that are above that, then according to Rabbi Leizer, everything is tamei. Everything is going to turn into be chashuf. As long as you don't throw it in the garbage, that's considered to be storage. Whether you put it behind the door, whether you hang it up, whether you put it into a box. That's all considered to be storage according to Rabbi Lezer and his Tamei. So my Dekorile Shalom in Amukhan. So Rabbi Lezer in his terminology said, whether it's Minamukhan, whether it's Enu Minamukhan, they are considered to be Tameim. What was he referencing? So now I'm going to read it like Rashi reads it, which is, according to Rabbi Lezer, there are four levels. When it comes to Kufsa, you place it in a Kufsa, that's called Mukhan. 
You place it on the Magod, or you place it on Chorea Delet, that's Eno Minamucha, in those two stages. Ashpa is out of the picture. So according to Rabbi Eliezer, you're a Tamei, when you say Ben Minamuchan, Muchan means if you put it into a Kufsa. Ben Shalom Minamuchan means either you put it on the Magod, or you put it at Rechorea Delet, you're still Tamei, in all of those three cases. That's the way Rashi reads Rabbi Eliezer. Then along comes Rabbi Yeshua. Rabbi Yeshua Savar, So like Shaul is saying, Rabbi Yeshua says that, if you don't put it away in a kufsa, then you've relegated it to insignificance. As long as you don't put it into a kufsa, it's by definition insignificant. And therefore, the definition of mukhan and lo mukhan is going to be based on that. My karle mukhan. So the gabe ashpa mukhan hu. Versus the ashpa, versus the garbage, these things are considered mukhan. Therefore, according to Rabbi Yoshua, garbage, ashpa, will be considered enam in a mukhan. That's not considered something that you're going to keep. But magod and achreya dalet, those are considered to be mukhan. And therefore, both of them will be tohor, because he says ben mina mukhan, ben shalom mina mukhan, tohor. Then along comes Rabbi Akiva and says, Rabbi Akiva bitlo b'magod. If he puts it up on the peg or on the frame, savar ki Rabbi Eliezer. He holds like Rabbi Eliezer. That's considered to be mukhan. Benichol achreya delet. When he put it behind the door, savar like Rabbi Yeshua. He holds like Rabbi Yeshua that that's shalom mina mukhan. So therefore, Rabbi. Akiva is addressing the middle two cases. By Kufsa, he calls that Muhan. By Ashpa, he calls it Enomino Muhan. Middle two cases, he divides up. He says that by Magod, that's also Muhan, like the Kufsa. And Achreadel is Enomino Muhan, like the Ashpa. And so therefore, each of them addresses the four levels, depending on their opinion. Again, for Rabbi Elezer and Rabbi Yoshua, there's no difference in the two middle levels. According to Rabbi Kiva, there is a difference in the middle levels. He splits it and says, one like Rabbi Yoshua, one like Rabbi Eliezer. Now, that's the way Rashi explains it. Tosafot takes issue with Rashi's explanation because he says, the Gemara in other places says Rabbi Kiva is the Machriya here. Rabbi Kiva is the decisive factor because he splits the difference. But according to the way Rashi is explaining it, Rabbi Kiva is not really splitting the difference. Because Rabbi Lezer believes Enomino Muchan is both cases in the middle. And Rabbi Shua believes that the middle cases are Muchan. And then Rabbi Kiva is taking one piece from Rabbi Yeshua, one piece from Rabbi Eliezer. But he's not being Machriya like either one of them in a full sense. And therefore, Tosafot says, only discussion here is about the middle two cases. And Muchan is defined as Magod, according to everyone. And Enomino Muchan is described as Achorea Delet, according to everybody. And then the statements that we said before, Meuchan and Enomuchan, relate to those two middle cases. And then Rabbi Kiva is really a Machriya then, because Rabbi Kiva is taking one Muchan-like, one of the opinions, and Enomino Muchan, the other case. And that's the same definition that Rabbi Lezer and Rabbi Yeshua had for it. The way Rashi is reading it, Rabbi Lezer and Rabbi Yeshua are not talking about the same Muchan and Enomuchan. Their definitions of Muchan and Enomuchan are totally different. And because they're different, of course they're going to have different opinions. They're not even talking apples and apples. They're talking apples and oranges because of the way they define it. So Tosafot does not like the way Rashi explains it. and says that everybody agrees that Muchan means Magot and Enumino Muchan means Achorei Ha-Delet. And then, why did the Gemara over here ask Muchan? It says, well, in relationship, Magot and Achorei Ha-Delet, in relation to each other, can't really be called Muchan and Lo Muchan. So the Gemara says the reference points are the outer bounds which are the Ashfa and the Kufsa, those are the reference points, and in reference to them, they're considered to be Muchan and Eno Muchan. The Gemara says, then, Later on, Rabbi Kiva reverses his opinion to agree to Rabbi Yeshua. Mimai, how do you know that? Amarava Miktani. Our Mishnah is an indication that Rabbi Kiva subscribed to Rabbi Yeshua's opinion, because our Mishnah says, 
Tilat Habeget. It's a Tila of the Beget. My area, the tiny Tilat Habeget. Why does it say Tilat Habeget? Let name Tila Shel Beget. Say that it's a Tila of the Beget. My Tilat Habeget. Daidayin Beget who? Because if you say Tila Shel Beget, that means that something was once a piece of clothing, and now it's a Tila. Something that derived from a Beget. That's something that you originally considered to be a Beget, and now, you made it into a ptila, so it's no longer a beget. But when you call something ptila beget, it means that the wick is a beget. It still retains its status or shame beget. Even though now it's a wick, it's still significant enough to be a beget. It sounds like you rolled up a beget. And even though you rolled up a beget, it still has a din of being a ptila now, and it loses its status of tumah. So what Rabbi Akiva is basically now saying is like Rabbi Yoshua. As long as you make it into something that's not a beget, you designate it for a usage that's not a beget, it loses its shame beget. Just like before when we used the rags, so like you were suggesting, as soon as you plug the bath with it, or you wipe the pans with it, you've changed its status by the usage or the utility. That's Rabbi Yeshua's opinion, that's Rabbi Akiva in the end is subscribing to, because as soon as you make it into a wick, even though the wick is still from a beget, it's considered to be a wick already, because you made it into a wick. And that's Rabbi Akiva's opinion, that's how he subscribes to Rabbi Yeshua. Therefore, according to Rabbi Amnuna, the Machloket in the Mishnah is simply, how do you remove the Shem Beged from it? When you make it into a wick, does that remove the Shem Beged? So according to Rabbi Akiva, once you've designated it as a wick, that removes it from the world of Beged, and it's Tehorah right away, because you made it into a wick, like making it into a plug for the bath. But, according to Rabbi Eliezer, that's not enough. Rabbi Eliezer told us already that you have to do something that totally takes it out of the world of Beged, which is you have to throw it in the garbage, basically. Just making it useful for wiping up things and plugging the bathroom, that's not make it, does not make it insignificant yet. Insignificance is only once you've thrown it out of the house and thrown it into the garbage. So therefore, according to Rebbe that's why he retains its Tumah. Now, as far as Shabbos candles, that's not the issue. The issue with Shabbos candles is, is this a good wick or not a good wick? And that's what the mission says, Kipla Velohivava or Kipla Vehivava. If you roll it up to be a wick, on Shabbat, the argument is not about whether it's a beget, not a beget. The simple question is, did you singe it or did you not singe it? According to Rabbi Eliezer, if you didn't singe it, it's not a wick that you can use for Shabbos. Not because of Tumah. You can't use it for Shabbos because it's not a good wick. It doesn't burn well for Shabbos. You're lighting, not in a case where it's a Yom Tov Erev Shabbos. You're lighting on Chol. So we couldn't care less if it's Tameh. You can light it if it's Tameh. You can light it if you're ruining a Kli. None of that matters because you're doing it all before Shabbat. The only thing that matters is it's going to burn well into the Shabbat. So according to Rebbe if you singed it, it'll burn well, and that's you, you're allowed to use it. But Kiva says you don't need to singe it. As soon as you roll it up, it's a good wick, and it's a good wick going into the Shabbat. So therefore, their machloket, we're separating here in their machloket between what's the issue by Tumah and Tara, and what the issue is by lighting the candles. As far as Tumah and Tara, it has nothing to do with the folding, or the burning, or the singeing. It simply has to do with utility. If you switch it to a wick... Is that enough to remove the shame beggar from it? According to Rabbi Kiva, yes. According to Rabbi Eliezer, no. A separate issue is Adlaka. Lighting candles going into Shabbat, independent of this issue of Tumatara, is this a good wick or a bad wick? That depends on whether you singe it or you don't singe it. The singeing has nothing to do with the Tumatara, and the Tumatara doesn't care about the singeing either. All it cares about is whether the utility is considered to be significant. According to Rabbi Eliezer, it is. It's not. So again, now we have three answers as to what their Machloket is about. Three Amoraim suggesting what the Machloket is. The first Amora was Ravada Bava, who suggested we're speaking about three by three, it's Ba'ot, exactly. And when it's Yom Tov, Shechaliyot, Be'er of Shabbat, and you're lighting it, 
As soon as you light it, it loses its significance. As soon as it loses its significance, it's no longer Tmeya, but it also now has a problem that you are burning Shivrei Kelim on Yom Tov, which is the problem or the Machloket according to of Adabar Ava. And the Tumantara has to do with, again, the designation. That Kippur, is that enough to take away its shame Tumah? Or not take away its shame Tumah? So according to Rav Adabar the Machloket about Tumantara is similar to what we said by Rav Amnuna, which is that it's folding it up into a wick enough to remove its shame Tumah or not when you're dealing with three by three Etzbaot. Now three by three Etzbaot is also a question of Adlaka, of Yom Tov, Shekhal Yodver of Shabbat. Are you burning with Shivrei Kelim? That's Rav Adabar's explanation. Rovah's explanation is that the question is, is this a good wick or not? Do you need to singe the wick to be a good wick or not going into Shabbat? It has nothing to do with Yom Tov Shechal Yodav Shabbat. Nothing to do with size, Tumantara. Tumantara is one issue. Is designating it as a wick enough? Or do you have to actually use it as a wick before it loses its significance? But with regards to Al-Boka going into Shabbat, the issue is simply, is this a good wick? Or is this not a good wick? Rabbi Lezer says it's not a good wick until you singe it. Rabbi says it's a good wick even before you singe it. The last explanation is Rabbam Nuna. Again, Rabbam Nuna agrees that the Makhlukah, the Bad Hadlokah, has to do whether this is a good wick or not a good wick like Rabbah. But he says the issue by Tumantara revolves around 3x3 three three Tfachim. Not 3x3 three three Etzba'ot, but 3x3 three three Tfachim. And 3x3 three three Tfachim, once you've gone below 3x3 three three Tfachim, what constitutes making something insignificant? Rabbi Eliezer has a very high standard for what makes something insignificant. You have to throw it in the garbage. Rabbi Giva, who subscribes to Rabbi Yoshua, has a very low standard or threshold about what makes something insignificant. As long as you don't store it, you don't keep it, and show significance with it, it's considered to be insignificant. So making it into a ptila already makes it insignificant for Rabbi Akiva. According to Rabbi Yezer, it won't be insignificant until you throw it into the garbage. Because we're talking about a cloth that's way above 3 by 3 It's both just below 3 by 3 Tfakim. And that's the three different ways to explain our Mishnah according to these three Amorayim. And the next Mishnah. Lo yikov adam shfoferet shel Christians should not take a shell of an egg and puncture a hole in it, then fill it with oil, and then put it on top of the lamp. So the lamp has a hole in the center, that's where you fill the oil from, and it has a hole or a mouth on the side where the wick comes out of. You light the wick, and the wick draws the oil from inside the lamp. This individual, instead of filling the lamp with oil, what he does is, he puts an eggshell on top of the center hole in the lamp, Punctures a hole in it and puts the oil into the eggshell. By doing that, what happens over Shabbat is the oil drips out of the eggshell into the lamp. Basically, what he's doing is he's metering the fuel that is going into the lamp by putting it in the eggshell. The problem with that is they're separate. The fuel is separate from the lamp itself. If the fuel's in the lamp, we know the individual won't take the fuel out because he knows it's a part of the lamp. If the fuel is kept in a separate utensil, like here the eggshell is holding the fuel outside of the lamp, what we're afraid of is he might need oil for a salad dressing. And he'll come here and take some of the oil from the eggshell because he won't associate it directly with the lamp because it's not in the lamp. It's outside the lamp. And therefore he won't feel like it's taking away fuel from the lamp. So that's it. So it drips in. Even if the utensil that is holding the oil on top and dripping it in. It's not an eggshell, but it's keres, plate. Once it becomes oily and dirty in the kli keres, you won't touch it. It's maus. So that you won't come into contact with. Nevertheless, it's problematic. Problematic because we're afraid he will take it, or even if he won't take it when it's disgusting, he will take it when it's not disgusting. And therefore we are, it goes there in all cases that he may not use this methodology of 
putting fuel into the lamp. Rabbi Yehuda Matir, Bida says it's not problematic, this is fine, people are not going to take the oil from there. Aval, imichibra yotzer mitchila mutar. If the shell or the cup that you're using to allow the oil to drip into the lamp is attached to the lamp, it's a part and parcel of the lamp, then even the Tanakhama agrees that it's mutar, because there's no way you're going to take the oil out of that. That's now considered to be a part of the lamp. It's part of the lamp, we're not afraid that people are going to take the fuel. They know lamps are muksa on Shabbos. Well, what are we afraid of? We're afraid of when they're two separate utensils that he'll think that the fuel is not really a part of the lamp. Because now it's considered to be one utensil. Now, a different way of having the fuel be metered out is you take a bowl and you fill it with oil. You have the lamp that's next to it and you run a wick between the bowl and the lamp. That wick then will draw the oil from the bowl into the lamp. And then from the lamp you can burn a wick that will draw that oil that's being brought in. So again, another way to meter the flow of the fuel. The person may not do that. You put the end of the tila in the bowl so it draws the fuel through to the lamp. And again, is matir in this case. Same problem, what are we afraid of? That he's going to come and need oil for his salad dressing. He's going to take the oil from the bowl. Because the bowl is seen as now as a separate entity from the lamp. Because the fuel is not in the lamp, it's separate. You might think you can use it. We need both of these cases. Had you taught me about the case of the eggshell, in that case, Rabbanon said, Since it's not disgusting, he will use it. He'll come and use, utilize that oil for eating or for salad dressing. But suddenly when cheres, it becomes disgusting and nobody would want to use that oil for food anymore, Maybe they would agree to review this position. The answer is no. Had you taught me about cheres, about the clay utensil has a hole in it that drips in, in the other case, maybe you would agree to the Rabbanan. Maybe in the case where it's a Shvoret Shobetza, he would agree to the Rabbana, because that's not disgusting. So therefore we need both of their opinions. You told me these two cases. Over there, Rabbi Yudah says that we don't worry about you taking the oil, because in the end, the eggshell is sitting in the lamp. The Klicheres is sitting in the lamp. So even though they're not attached, they still look like one utensil. But the case of the bowl, where you have the wick running from the bowl into the lamp, over there, there are two separate utensils, and they're sitting separately. Maybe over there, he would agree with the Rabbanan that you can't do that. So, Kamash Malan, that that's not the case. Had we only had the case of the bowl, with the wick drawing it into the lamp, and over there, that's where the Rabbanan say that we worry about him taking the bowl, it's a separate entity. But the case of the eggshell or the clay that sits on the top of the lamp, maybe they agree with the that it's not a problem. Therefore, we need all three cases in the Mishnah. We need all three cases to teach us. In all these cases, Rabbi Yudha thinks it's not a problem. In all these three cases, the Rabbana think it is a problem. Because each case is distinct from the other one, has a different situation, a reality to it, we have all these cases to give you the whole spectrum. A spectrum all the way from something that's totally separate to something that's completely attached. And in that spectrum, Rabbi Yehuda always believes it's mutar, and the Chachamim believe that it is problematic unless it's physically attached. If he attaches the eggshell or the pottery on top that's dripping the shemen into the lamp, if he attaches it with plaster or with clay, mutar. 
Didn't our Mishnah say it has to be done by the professional potter from the start? My Yotzer. What does that mean, the potter in the Mishnah? It means Kane Yotzer. You have to attach them the way that a potter would, which means that it is a permanent attachment, something that combines them or makes them into a kliachad. So now the Gemara continues. Tanya, I'm reading with Pamachat, Shifteno, Be Aliyat, Beit Nitzeh, Belod. We were staying for Shabbat in the upper chamber, the upper floor of the house of Beit Nitzeh. Nitzeh is the name of the family. Belod, Bevilanosh, Faferet, Shel Beitza. They brought us an eggshell. Bumalanua, Shemen. We filled it up with oil, and then we punctured a hole in it. And then we put it on top of the lamp. And in that gathering was Rabbi Tarfon, Vizikinim, Rabbi Tarfon, all the elders. And they didn't say anything to us. When we did this going to the Shabbat, they didn't object. So that seems like they acquiesced to what he was doing and think that it is mutar. That's a proof. This is an unusual place because... Everyone that was found there was someone who was very makpid on keeping Shabbat. They were very careful about these types of issues, and therefore nobody would have taken the fuel from the lamp in this case. But that's not the din in a normal situation. Happens to be in that situation, they let it go. Even though they should have objected, they let it go because they knew nobody was going to touch it. But in reality, the law is that you can't do that. And nobody's allowed to do that. So the answer is that it should have applied. They didn't object because they knew nothing would happen, but they should have objected, and we'll see that from the next line in the Gemara. Avin Tzipora. So Avin Tzipora is the name of an individual. Garar Sapsala. He dragged a bench. Be'elita Deshisha. In a chamber that was paved with marble. Stone. Le'ela mi Rabbi Yitzhak ben Elazar. In front of Rabbi Yitzhak ben Elazar. Amalei. Ishtuke lecha. If I am silent to you, Kishtigelei chavraya le Rabbi Yudah. Like the Rabbanan were silent when Rabbi Yehuda did what he did in that Aliyah, nothing can churba. It's going to end up being a disaster. Because if I don't, even though I know what you did is not problematic in this instance, we are gozer in other instances for it, and therefore if I let it go here, it's going to be a bad situation. Indicating that the Chachamim should have said something to Rabbi Yehuda in the Aliyah, even though they didn't. Even though they knew in this situation it wouldn't be problematic, they should have said something because Rabbi Yehuda came to the wrong conclusion because of that. Zera elita de shisha to elita de alma. We have Xera that you may not drag a bench across a stone floor because of a normal floor. What's a normal floor? That's made out of dirt. Dirt floor is when you drag the bench across it, you're going to make charitz in it. So because of that, we don't let you drag on stone floors because we're afraid that if you drag on the stone floors, you also drag when it's not a stone floor. So over here, he says, even though what you did is not problematic and inherently, I'm not going to not object to you because I want to object and tell you that we don't allow this anywhere. Reish Kanishto de Batsro, the head of the shul in Batsra, so Reish Kanish Rashi says is the maftir akniyasiot, and he describes it basically as the usher of the shul. Garar safsala le'ela mi Rabbi Yirmiya Rabbel. He dragged a bench in front of Rabbi Yirmiya Rabbel. I'm like, come on, who do you hold like? Rabbi Shimon. So the usher says back to him, I hold like Rabbi Shimon. Now Rabbi Shimon we saw earlier in the Gemara, and we're going to see him again many times. He and Rabbi Yehuda disagree about davar she'enu mitzkavein. When you don't have intention to do something, is it problematic on Shabbat? Shimon believes, if you're not mitkavein for it, it's not problematic. Here, when you're dragging the bench, you're not intending to make a charitz, to make a groove in the ground. That's a byproduct of what you're doing. So since it's not what you intend for, mutar. On the other hand, Rabbi Yehuda says, is still problematic on Shabbat, and therefore it's not permitted. So when Rabbi Yirmiyah Rabba said to him, how come you're dragging the bench? He says, I hold like Rabbi Shimon. So he says, Rabbi Shimon, big dolim, dolo efshar. 
Rabbi Shimon only said his opinion by large benches, where there's no other way to carry them. The only way to carry them is to drag them. They're too heavy. Biktanim, but if you have a small bench where you have an alternative, Miyamar, who says that? He says over there, you're allowed to drag it. When we say that it's a big one and it makes a charitz, it's not that it's absolutely certain that it'll make a charitz. It could make a charitz in the ground, but it's not certain that that will happen. Upligid ula, this argues on ula, damar ula machloke biktanim. Rabbi Yudin and Rabbi Shimon only argue about small benches where you have an alternative. Aval bigdolim, when you have large benches, mutar. even Rabbi Yudin agrees it's mutar there because you have no choice. You need to drag it. It's not certain that you will make a charitz, but you have no other alternative to move the bench, just to drag it along. So those are the two ways to explain the machlok of Rabbi Shimon and Rabbi Yudin. But this objection of Rabbi Yirmiya Rabba said to the usher or the caretaker of the shul, don't drag the bench around. You can't drag the bench because it is a... Small bench. And a small bench, even Rabbi Shimon says it is problematic. So now, Rabbi says, Meitiv Rabbi Yosef. Here we bring the bright Rabbi Shimon Omer. Gorera damitaki seves of sal. Person can drag a bed, a chair, a bench. Uvach loit kaven lasot charitz. As long as he doesn't intend to make a groove in the ground. Tanik dolim, tanik tanim. Sorry, the bright that we're quoting over here, Rabbi Shimon, includes mitah, kisei and sal. That's a range of items from big to small. You have a kisei, which is small. You have a safsal or mitah, you have big items there too. Sounds like Rabbi Shimon's opinion applies both instances, big and small. So Gemara says, Kashul That's a problem for Ula and a problem for Miriya Rabba. Gemara says, Ula mitaritz letamei. Ula has a way to answer it. Rabbi Yirmiya Rabba mitaritz letamei. Rabbi Yirmiya Rabba has a way to answer it. Ula mitaritz letamei. Ula says, Mita tumi de kisei. Ula said, Machlok between him and Rabbi Yudah only is in Ktanim. And therefore that statement of Rabbi Shimon where Rabbi Yudah argues, must be a case of Ktanim. How does he make it into a case of Ktanim? says it's a bed that's similar to a chair. Chair is the item that's defining for us the size of the items here. And the mitan safsal are the same as a chair. It's a small. We're talking about a small bed. A small bench. Everything is small in that statement. Yomirabo will say the other way around. Mita is the guide. Mita is big. And we're talking about a chair. We're talking about a chair that is equivalent in size to a mita. So we're only talking about big kilim over there. And that's where Rabbi Shimon argues with Rabbi Yehuda. So, Meitiv Rabbo. Mochrei kesut, mochrein kedartacham. People who sell clothing can sell their clothing the way they normally do. Uvachloit kavein b'chamar p'nei chama. As long as he doesn't intend for the clothing to protect him from the sun. Or b'chamim p'nei chamim. Or in the rain to protect him from the rain. What we're speaking about here is people who sell clothes. And they have to also sell kilayim. They sell clothing that is kilayim that they can't wear. The way that they used to show the customers what it looked like, they used to put it on themselves. They used to wear the beggar that they're selling to show what it looked like. Their own models of their clothing, their own mannequins. So now, in putting on this clothing, they're wearing kilayim. So Rabbi Shimo Meshitato says, if it's a davar sheno mitkavein, then it's fine. Over here, when you're wearing clothing, do you intend the clothing to be for utility as clothing? No. You're simply wearing them to show the other people. So therefore, as long as you don't wear them to protect you from the sun or the rain, then it's not intentional wearing. Not intentional wearing is considered to be permissible. That's nuim mafshilim b'makel da'achoreihem. And those that are tzanua, meaning those that are very careful doing mitzvot, they used to use a stick. They'd hold up the clothing on them with a stick so they didn't actually wear it. Even though technically it was muktar, if they were not mitkaveh, they didn't want to even get involved. So they used to hold it up on a stick next to them so they weren't actually physically wearing it. They have kilayim in their store that they're selling. They're wearing clothing that's not kilayim, and now they want to show, demonstrate for other people this kilayim bag it. They're selling to non-Jews. No, they can't wear this as their clothing. They're wearing clothing 
And on top of their clothing, they put this item on. That's a case the Efshalim Aved Kitsnuim. You have the opportunity to do it like the Tsnuim, to put it up on the stick. And yet, and that's like the equivalent to Ktanim. And even though that's the fact, Rabbi Shimon says, no problem, put it on and you can wear it, no problem. That really undermines Rabbi Yirmi Yabba's position. Because Rabbi Yeriyabba says when you have the possibility of doing it otherwise, you have to take that opportunity. Shimon only said by Dolim according to Rabbi Yeriyabba, but if it's Ketanim, you'd have to carry it instead of dragging it. Over here we have a case where you have an alternative. The alternative is to put it up on a stick. And yet Rabbi Shimon says if you put it on, it's fine. You're allowed to do it. Only the Tzduim did it that way. But anybody else, they put it on and it wasn't a problem because it's Davashen Mitzkavein. So you see that Rabbi Yirmiyah Barabba's qualification of Rabbi Shimon is not to write. That Rabbi Shimon says his opinion, whether you have an alternative or not an alternative, as long as you're not mitkavein, as long as you're not intending for the outcome, you are fine. And therefore, maybe Ula's distinction could be right, but Rabbi Yirmiyah distinction is clearly not correct. Just going to go a drop further here, only because tomorrow's daf is very long. Try to get to the two dots on the top of Lama, which is a mechabet aner, Someone extinguishes the candle because he's afraid of the non-Jews. They have a holiday where you're not allowed to light candles in your house. So he extinguishes it because he's afraid. He's afraid of the marauders, thieves coming in. He's affected by a bad spirit and having the light on is difficult for him. Or is that the somebody's sick there needs to sleep? Patur. He's patur. Patur again in Mishnah means patur aval asur. You shouldn't be doing it. Patur min doraita asur mi de rabbanan. If the reason he's extinguishing it is because he's afraid it's going to burn the lamp and ruin the lamp. Chasal Hashem. He's afraid of losing the oil. Chasal abtila. He's afraid of losing the wick. Chayav. In that case, he's chayav because his intention for extinguishing is not because of any fear. It's because. He wants to protect the objects there. It's a monetary decision. Biosi puter bechulan chutzmin aptila. Biosi says all of these are patur even in the latter cases, except for the case where he's trying to save the wick. Because when you extinguish the wick, it's good for a coal. It's good for coal now, and you've made it into something that is useful. So now the Gemara asks, Mikdani seifa chayav. Because the seifa, the latter half of that mission says you're chayav. Shmamina Rabbi Yehuda. Clear that this is the position of Rabbi Yehuda. Because Rabbi Yehuda is the only one who thinks that is problematic. Over here, when you extinguish it, you don't extinguish it because you want to extinguish it. You extinguish it to save something else. That's called Malacha Shein Tzrichad Gufa. It's the Malacha that was done in the Mishkan, but it's not for the same outcome that you want in the Mishkan. The reason you extinguish in the Mishkan is because you want it out. You want to extinguish it. The reason that you're extinguishing here is to protect the other object. So in Malacha Shein Tzrichad Gufa, Rabbi Shimon believes you're patur of Al-Asur, and Rabbi Yehuda believes that you are Chayav. The fact that the letter of our Mishnah says Chayav means that Rabbi Yehuda is the author of our Mishnah. Now, if Rabbi Yehuda is the author of our Mishnah, Reisha Sikna. What's the case in the Reisha? The case where you're putting it out because of the Chole and all those other items there. If it's a Chole Sheyesh Sakana, if it's a Chole that's in danger to life and limb, Mutar mi Ba'ilei. It should say Mutar. Everybody agrees if there's danger to life that you're allowed to extinguish it. That's not a question. Rabbi Yudha, Rabbi Shimon, doesn't matter. It should say mutar, not patur. If it's a chola that's not in danger of life and limb, chayav chatat mi baile. It should be chayav chatat. Over there, you're doing the same problem as the latter half of the Mishnah, which is what's malachu shen smichad gufa. You're extinguishing it, not for the purpose of extinguishing it, but for some other reason, so the sick person can sleep, so the nachrim don't come. You're not in danger of life and limb. So if you do that, according to Rabbi Yudha, you'd be chayav chatat, like the latter half of the Mishnah. So how come the first half of the mission says patur? Patur doesn't work according to Rabbi Yehuda. It should either be mutar or chayav. There should be no patur in the first half of the Mishnah. Mara says, so Mara says, We're talking about a chola that is 
deathly ill. You're right. The first half of the mission said it should have used the word mutar. Because the latter half of the Mishnah is Chayav for literary balance. In the Mishnah, they put Patur and Chayav. Really, it should be Mutar and Chayav. But for that literary style and balance, they kept it as Patur and Chayav. If it's for the Chulet to sleep, then you should not extinguish it. If you do extinguish it, it's Patur, but Asur. That opinion of Rabbi Shaya is a case where it's a choled that is not in danger of life or limb, and it's according to Rabbi Shimon. Our Mishnah is clearly Rabbi Huda, so you can't explain it that way in our Mishnah. You can't explain the Mishnah as according to Rabbi Shimon, because Rabbi Huda is clearly the author of the Mishnah, because of the latter half of the Mishnah. Once Rabbi Huda is the latter half of the Mishnah, the author of the latter half, he has to be the author of the first half. Being the author of the first half, it should have said Mutar, because we're talking about danger to life and limb. So therefore, the Patur is Lavdafka in the Mishnah, it really means Mutar. But in the case of Rabbi Shayu, who makes a statement independently, and says that when you extinguish for a choled, Extinguishing for a is patur of alasur. There we can say it's according to Rabbi Shimon. Rabbi Shimon says that it's a melacha she'en tzricha the gufa, and melacha she'en tzricha the gufa according to Rabbi Shimon is patur of alasur. And Rabbi Oshaya is subscribing to that position of Rabbi Shimon and melacha she'en tzricha the gufa. And that's why in the Mishnah, the only case where you have a melacha she'en tzricha the gufa by kiboy, when you extinguish something, the only time that you actually extinguish it for the purpose of extinguishing it is either pechamim make coals, and that's what the Mishnah says over there, that Rabbi Yossi says, that the only case where you're going to be chayav is when you extinguish it for pechamim, when you made it into a coal. Because then the purpose of extinguishing is for the same reason they used in the Mishkan, they extinguish to have the coal, to have the blackened substance afterwards. Or, if you extinguish it when you are singeing the wick. You light the wick in order to singe it, to burn it, but you don't want it to burn the wick out, you want it simply to singe it. In that case, when you extinguish it again, it's for the purpose of the wick itself. Those are the only two cases where you can have what's called Malacha Shetzricha the Gufa by Kiboy. Kiboy always will be Malacha Shetzricha the Gufa, which is that when you extinguish it, it's not for the purpose of extinguishing it, it's for some other reason. Because of that, it's always Malacha Shetzricha the Gufa, and you have the Machloka. The Behuda in that case says, you're a Chayav. Bishimon says, you're Patur of al The only two cases where even Rabbi Shimon will agree that it's problematic, is a case where you extinguish it for the purpose that was done in the Mishkan. It's either to create a pecham, to create a coal, or you extinguish it to singe the p'tila. In both those cases, the extinguishing is the purpose there. The extinguishing is why you want to extinguish it, is to create exactly what you do by extinguishing it. That's considered melacha to the gufa, and even Rabbi Shimon would agree in that case that you're chayav chatat, because that is melacha shetzricha the gufa. That's the way the melacha was done in the Mishkan, and for the purpose done in the Mishkan, and that's why you'd be chayav. Is where you do the same action as the Mishkan, but for a different reason, a different purpose. That will be all the other cases in the Mishnah. Rabbi Yudah will say Chayav, Rabbi Shimon will say Patur of Alasur, and that's why Rabbi Yudah is the author of our Mishnah. Okay, we'll stop here.